welcome, welcome this morning. You guys excited to be here? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice to be here. It's nice to be here. My name is Moises. I'm the pastor here. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you at the end of this. Um, we, we, we're super excited that you're here and that you picked this place to, to, to come and worship. Um, let's give it up for the worship team one more time, right? Yeah, so today we continue the sermon series title, um, The Promise of Home, and, and in it, we're looking at the story of Joshua. If you weren't here last week, you could always go on our podcast and listen to the, to the sermon last week, but um, it, it, we're just looking at Joshua and how he led this charge into what was once promised to Moses, this promised land, and how he kind of took that promise and kind of took the charge to continue that, that, that promise for the people of Israel. Um, I began last week talking about a story about Joshua and, and, and giving out this idea that the story of Joshua has become like a staple for our church in a way um, here in Waxo. As we came into this land kind of thinking that we could reignite the fire within this community and this city, um, in this new thriving community. Um, you know, we, we know, guys, that we're not the first church in Waxhaw. We know that we won't be the last church in Waxhaw, but we truly feel that God has sent us into this city as the reinforcements that this church, that this city needs in this community. As I told you last week, our desire for this community is to develop a community of believers throughout the city that would fulfill their God-given call as they share faith with one another and become part of this great and amazing family. Don't you feel the love when you walk in the room? Amen? Hopefully. If you don't, let's talk afterwards. I think I could help. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So last week we introduced a series talking about Rahab the prostitute as she heard, believed, prayed, and acted. And we looked at what we would consider this insignificant person. A person that, that, that shouldn't matter most to people was selected single-handedly, selected by God to make an impact on an entire nation and ultimately becoming part of the genealogy of our own Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know that when the Bible talks of genealogy, it always refers to or always singles out men when talking about the genealogy? We see Rahab, she becomes one of the four that is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, such an insignificant life, but making such an impact to the point where she's included in the genealogy of our Savior. I think that's amazing. Last week, we, we kind of shared this idea that your life is not insignificant. Even in whatever condition you're in, you could make an impact um, in whatever God calls you to do. Today, we continue that story. We're going to go a little bit further into the book of Joshua. Um, as we look at what resulted in that communication with Joshua, we're going to kind of kick things off right exactly where we left off last week, where, where the spies go back from meeting with Rahab. They go and communicate to Joshua what had taken place. And, and, and we read it in Joshua chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. If you got your Bibles, we're going to just read chapter 2, but we're mainly going to be in Joshua chapter 6. I know a lot of people got their phones, not their Bibles. Don't worry about it. I'm not coming after your forms. You're good. Joshua chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, it says, Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said, for all the people of, their, the, of the land are terrified of us. 
So the, the Israelites crossed the Jordan. They do a memorial for that crossing. Israelite, Israel reestablished the covenant of the ceremony. Then the Lord commander confronts Joshua. And now they are camped at Gilgal at the plain of Jericho. And this is where we're at in the story. Then we continue to read chapter 6 and see what happens next. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. We see a people that were terrified. Terror had fallen in the land. The people, the Canaanites, were, were terrified of what God was doing and what he had accomplished so far and what was coming on to them. Apparently, the, the words of Rahab were true. The people were truly scared. They were terrified of the things that were to come. It's funny that you, it's not funny, but the city of, of, of Jericho was already cursed and doomed by God in chapter 23 of the book of Exodus. It seemed like they operated as a city glorifying in their strength. They, they kind of were arrogant, ignorant of their condition. And as I was reading this and looking at the condition of the people of Jericho, I started to compare to many people today and the condition that people are in. That we have kind of grown ignorant to our own condition and how we're truly living and the things that we're accepting in our lives and allowing to happen in our lives. It's sad to see the condition of people where, where they end up in a criteria of hopelessness. I mean, listen, I know that there, that there is... Horrible sickness happening out there and different things that happen. But did you know that sin is by far the worst disease that we all have? I mean, it, it, is, it is, if left unattended, it could be terminal for everybody's life. We are all stained by it, sadly. Born into it, and when left unattended, we're left with no hope. You know why weeds continue to grow in a garden? Because no one takes the time to pull them out. Same is true for our sin. Look at what Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says. I think I, instead of when, it just said, unfortunately, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Should I change the mic? Yeah, give me a handheld. We had this planned out for all of you guys, so to keep you engaged in the sermon. I noticed I was losing it. I had the board ready. We, we got it. It worked, Ricky. Now they're back in. Thank you. Just like we planned it. Now I can't use my hands. No, I feel strapped. No, um... You know, did you know that hope could be the one thing that allows you to do almost anything? Just like hopelessness can be the one thing that keeps you from doing almost anything. It is, it is something that is never found circumstantially. It is only found in our purpose. Listen what Ephesians 1.18 says. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given those he called. His holy people who are rich and glorious and, and his glorious inheritance. 
Joshua believed in God. He believed so much in God and trusted God in through this whole process that in fact, you could almost say that it made the journey for Joshua a little bit easier. Not because it wasn't difficult, but because he decided to trust God and have faith on what God had promised him and the purpose that he had aligned behind him. So much so that God began convicting the people of the God that they were opposing. The people in Jericho were terrified. They didn't know what was to come. They've only heard stories. As people of God, we are called to operate under a similar conviction. Our battle has already been won. Do you agree? We know the outcome. There's only one outcome. As believers, we're called to live like it. Not just know that. You may think that the most difficult part of your life is the current process that you're in. But haven't you noticed that sometimes it's better when we just don't know? We want to know everything. But I'm telling you, sometimes it's better when we don't know. There are things that if we knew, we would force this unrealistic character out and this completely weird person that you don't even know yet would come out. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm glad I don't know. <laughs> You're like, what do you mean? What, what do I need to know? <laughs> know what? <laughs> Listen, sometimes the greatest source of our joy is found in what is unseen. Look at, look at what 1 Peter 1.8 says. You love him? Even though you haven't seen him, though you don't see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and you rejoice with a glorious, inexplicable joy. We learned last week that God is an expert at working through very uncommon situations, very uncommon people, people that usually aren't the best somehow end up getting selected by God to accomplish great acts of faith. We would also assume that God constantly seems to have this thing where he utilizes these foolish things. And you may think, that you just say that God is foolish? Listen, I want to read you this whole entire verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read 18 to 27. Listen to this. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. It's up here, right? But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So, so where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Go to the next one. Since God in his wisdom saw it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching. That's me. To save those who believe. <laughs> it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs in heaven. It is foolish to the Greek who seek human wisdom. 
So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. It, it's amazing. So I, I love the idea when we talk about these things. It's, it's amazing how the word of God kind of preaches itself. You just read it and it sounds like a sermon because it is a sermon. God wants man to put his faith into action. Trusting God to crumble the walls of Jericho seemed like a foolish plan. Nevertheless, God will do it, relying on the faith of his people. Here's the first thing that happens. Number one, the command. Joshua 6, 2 to 5, it says, But the Lord said to Joshua, I give you Jericho, its kings, and all the strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can and the people could charge straight into the town. You know, it's, it's tough because honestly, the plans of God in our lives and, and how, how, how he goes about calling us to certain things will often make no sense at all. The way God sometimes asks you to do certain things in your life, how to overcome the obstacles that you're facing, sometimes seem like the foolish, the, the, the saddest, silliest thing that you've ever heard before. But a man after God's heart keeps a focus on the obedience and not the obstacle that's in front of him. It's not necessarily how big the obstacle because obedience to God is invisible faith put into visible action. It's not something that depends on good or bad circumstances. No matter how crazy the command from God may seem to our personal lives, we are called to act in faith of a God who has already won and has never failed you. If you don't know that, let me tell you that I don't have to know your life to understand and know 100% certain that God has never failed you. That is a true statement. Any objection through that is a misunderstanding, is a lack of understanding. We must realize that our understanding can wait, but our obedience can't. David said in Psalms 119.33, just tell me what to do, God, and I'll do it. It wasn't based on an understanding. No, no. Understanding can wait, but your obedience can't. That's a tough pill to swallow. But it's what God calls us to do. David said in that same verse, he said, as long as I live, I will obey you wholeheartedly. My whole life will be yours. These people were probably thinking, where is God leading us here? We're going to walk around the city six times and follow 
blow the horns and then shout and then run into the city and all these things were going to happen. And sometimes we end up underestimating those things that God is about to do because the plan sounds crazy. It's one of the craziest things we've ever heard. We apply understanding to obedience. You know, one of the things that I, I, I lived in my life, and those of you who are close to me and know this, is that I've always, when we first got married, to, I, I told Rosie from the get-go, I feel called to adopt. It's like that thing that I just kind of threw at her. You're in now, like, it's happening. She's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, that sounds good, you know? But it was always my heart. I said, we're going to adopt some, uh, a kid, uh, something. We, we, we're going to, I feel called. That's my, that, that, not a dog, you know what I mean? <laughs> Man, you guys, you don't cut me any slack here. Hey, go ahead and give me another mic. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, I have, I have, no, I have no more mic tricks. Um, <laughs> so I told Rosie, I said, this is what I feel called to do. I feel like God's called me to do this. I have my own plan. I said, you know, Rosie and I got married really young. And, and for the first seven years of our life, we were like, we're not going to have any children. We're just going to have fun. We went, I don't even remember how many cruises we went on. It was like we were out and about all the time, loving life, bought our first house, sold our first house. It was just, it was just like an ongoing thing, you know, having fun. And then, and then seven years later, we say, hey, I think we're ready for kids because my idea of it all was always to bring in someone once I had an established family. What we're going to do is it's, it's, we're going to, our family is going to come and bring someone in who needs it. And we're going to pour into their little lives and, and change their lives forever. And I feel called to do this. And, then, and, and, and so it happens that, that years later, years went by after the seven years of marriage, and we weren't having any children. We're at year 10 of our marriage. Three years have gone by. I'm fine. She's fine. And then we get a call from a retired social worker that says there's a baby that's going to be born in five weeks. You guys want to adopt? And she brings me this news, and I'm like, um, that sounds crazy. <laughs> but that's what I feel called to do, understanding and obedience, understanding and obedience. Understanding can wait. Obedience happens now. So the plans were different. I'm like, five weeks? Don't people usually get like nine months for this thing? <laughs> It's a process, you know? And I'm like, understanding, obedience. I know this is what I'm called to do, but I'm going to be obedient in what I have to do. I didn't understand. It was still up in the air in a lot of ways. It's like a last-minute thing. You're getting calls, and it's really, it's an emotional roller coaster, you know? But you know what I did? I still painted the room. I still moved the boxes out of the way. I still bought the stuff that we needed for it. It was crazy. I didn't understand it. It was kind of uncertain, to be honest. But what I'm doing is I'm in my room like five weeks. That room had, it was literally our storage. We had moved in. We had lived there. I don't know if you have that room in your house. I'm not trying to call anybody out. <laughs> But it was that room where, where we moved in, and, and that room just, 
held on to those boxes that never get opened and we never looked into them again. And that's what that room was. We hadn't touched the room. We start taking boxes out, start prepping for it. You think this is really going to happen? I guess. And we're sitting there painting the room. And God gives us a miracle. I, I thought Superman was born when that little kid was born. I was sitting there in a hospital room and next to the grandfather that I met for the first time. Rosie's in the delivery room with our baby, holding the mom's hand. And I'm on the outside, and 8.30 hit, and apparently the lights in the hospital switch. So all I hear is screaming, and Rosie's saying, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And then I hear a baby crying, and the lights flicker, and I was like, oh, Superman was born. Unbelievable, uncertain. Our little miracle, Sebastian, he's five. You see him running around here. He's our miracle. Didn't happen how I anticipated it to happen, but, 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 it's not, to me, it's not for me to understand, it's for me to obey. So I paint the wall. So I got the boxes out. And I walked the process out. It wasn't the time to look at God and say, this is not how I wanted it. That's not how I saw it. No, no, because I have faith in my God. And I know that what he has for me is even better than what I think I want for myself. And that's how we should live our lives. It kind of leads me to the next thing is that number two, the consecration. Joshua delivered the command and begins a process of preparation for what is going to take place. Because in a lot of ways, the plan of God in our lives never calls for us to stay idle. Can I tell you that? You could always be doing something towards whatever God is calling you to do. You're not going to outwork God. But it never calls for you to be idled. You could pray. You could prepare yourself. You could do so many things instead of just standing there. Sadly, what we have today, guys, is we have churches today that are being preached inspiring messages. But people are being underprepared. There, there's an under-preparation taking place. I'm not taking a shot at anybody, guys. It's just sad to see that it will break my heart for me to sit here and give you an inspiring word where you live here, you leave this place so excited and joyful, and then you get home and said, what did he talk about again? How do I put this to practice? It felt good while I was there. We tend to do it with our children, the worst. We are so worried about the unseen that as parents, we've taken the stance of overprotecting our next generation and underpreparing them. We hide them. We keep them away because there's a lot of evil out there. And we don't allow them to be exposed to certain things that may benefit them. As a parent, I'm not going to tell you what those things are. Of course, I, I, I say it now with my child. I don't want to expose him to anything evil. I want to protect him, but I want to find a way to prepare him. Because I know life is difficult. And as a believer in Christ, he's going to have to face that one day without me. And I want to make sure he's ready and strong and able to. Joshua chapter 6, verse 6 to 7 says, So Joshua called together the priests and said, 
Take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. Then he gave orders to the people, march around the town, and, they, and then the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. This will serve as a representation of God's guidance and his presence with the people. This life journey is mainly controlled by God. You get that? You, God controls your life's journey. It's in his hands. You want it to be that way. He wants you to be involved. But we tend to think two, two ways we look at things, right? If I have no control over it, I shrug my shoulders and let it happen. You either give me full control of it or God, you do it all. You know? And in life, things are going to be out of your control for the most part. What I've come to learn is that whenever God gives me the opportunity to do something, I take full advantage of it. I try to put together my best so that I can make the right decisions. When it comes to what we're called to do, we have to create a balance between being persistent at something and not being stubborn on how we want to lead it. And one thing that's always helped me in my personal life is that I've always looked at my relationship with God with no matter what, God always leads and I always follow. It's a life principle. God, you, you lead, I follow. You lead, I follow. No matter what I'm doing, it could look like I'm leading, but I'm following God. It's a life principle. You know, the, the kingdom of God, in this kingdom, we, we all get to play, you know? Because everyone has a part to play. Sometimes we, we want to be in control so much that we bypass the work that God is doing through us. You, you guys remember that old commercial that used to say, is running your business getting in the way of running your business? And in life, we tend to be that way with our control in life. We, we're, we're trying to, we, we can't allow the work of God through us to kill the work of God in us. You may say, Moise, I just don't want to talk about it. It's too complicated. You wouldn't understand. And, and the truth is, if, if you can't talk about something in your life, it's because it's already out of control. And, and, and it's important for us to, to play a part that we're called to play and not ignore it. If you are or you want to be in the plan of God, there is something you can do. There's a way you could prepare yourself. You may not be ready to accomplish it right this second, but there is a preparation concept that goes into play that you could put into effect right now and do and get ready for whatever's coming tomorrow or the next time. Number three, we see the crumbling city. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 to 21 is this moment of culmination they all have been waiting for. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites ch charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, the men and women, young, old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. The city of Jericho cover about eight acres total. It was a place of refuge and protection. It actually says that the walls were 30 feet high and 20 feet thick. That's gigantic. For a little guy like myself, that just looks amazing. It wasn't supposed to be easy. We know that this victory would leap Joshua into an entire new bracket into his life and faith with God. 
Not only that, but the people would know that the God of Israel was more powerful than the gods of the Canaanites. But it looked really difficult. The walls were big. You know, and, and, and here's my cliche statement for today is that sometimes we get too caught up measuring the obstacle in our lives. And we, we, we center our focus around me- measuring the obstacle in front of us. You know? You know, could, could it be that the obstacle is, is basically an incentive that's there to, to carry the momentum that you're going to need to crumble it or overcome it? The, the Japanese had this idea. They, they've always been known for liking fresh fish, okay? So they began to fish on their coast and bring the fish in. People loved it. But the more they did that, the fish became less and less available closer to the coast. So they began to fish further and further out. And by the time they got back to the port, the fish were already dead. Well, the people picked up on the fact that the fish wasn't fresh enough. They knew the difference. So the fishermen decide to put coolers in their boats. Say this will keep keep the fish somewhat fresh. So they would go and put the coolers in. But the people still noticed that although the fish were placed in a cooler after they were, they were still not as fresh. So they decided, okay, this is what we can do. We can put water tanks and keep the fish alive. And as we're coming back to the port, the fish will still be alive. But what happened is the fish had no incentive to swim. So they just grew lazy and sat there and didn't really swim. And actually, some of them ended up dying anyway, so they were not fresh again, and the people picked up on it. I would have quit by this moment, but the fishermen decide to put a small shark in the tank. Not to necessarily eat the fish, but to keep the fish swimming so they could stay active. And all the fish did in the water tank in the fishboat was swim and run away from the shark. Sad, I know. You put it into perspective, it's like, man, that's a tough life. But it kept the fish active and swimming, and by the time they got back, they were still fresh. You know, our obstacles are, are, are only there to be an incentive of our faith. The obstacle is not there to kill you. It's probably there to make you swim a little bit faster. Build as an incentive for the momentum that you're going to need to overcome the obstacle that's standing in front of you. You're so caught up in measuring how challenging this is over your life. And God is just like, listen, I'm not killing you. Just keep swimming. Have faith in me. It's not over. Our victory is always found in this principle, a principle that says, even though if nothing changes, my God is still in control. Even if the circumstances remain where they're at, my God is still in charge. Obedience to God's command always brings victory. When we obey his commands, we can expect him to answer our prayers. Disobedience has no place in the Christian life. Why is this so important? Because when everything else fails, God does through us, what God does through us ultimately makes us humble and submissive to him. 
And when we realize that he's the one leading us and we're not leading ourselves, that he's the one controlling our path and we're not controlling our own path, God accomplishes amazing things through your life. The ultimate, in general, humble people leave behind a residue of God, not themselves. The problem isn't the death of our theology. It's humble hearts realizing that we control nothing. That is a sovereign God operating fully in what he knows best for us. I say this all the time. God knows what he wants for your life better than what you want. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves your children more than you love your children. He loves your husband, your wife more than you love. He surpasses all that. When we look at the scale of things, our involvement in what God is doing through us is so small sometimes. I look at the story of Joshua, and when you put it into this perspective, really the dude just walked around and communicated. And I know Joshua's probably looking down on me like, come on, man, give me a little bit more credit than that. He, just, he walked around and, and, and relay information. You know, we, we worry and fear because things get difficult. And make statements like, what I'm going through is so difficult. My life is so challenging. This season of life, this battle I'm facing, Moises, you don't understand. And I'm not downplaying what you're going through. But I'm a firm believer that ultimately it is not your fight. It's, it's, um, I look back on chapter 5 of the book of Joshua at the end, and it's a great reminder of this concept. Because we look, at, we look at the fight of Jericho as this culmination, and we think of our fight, and we think of how we react to it, how we could operate in it. And, and this encounter that Joshua has at the end of chapter 5 gets kind of overlooked sometimes. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 13 to 15, and I'll, I'm going to leave you with this. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing there in front of him with the sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you a friend or a foe? He said, neither one. He replied, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell to his face. Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command. Joshua said, what do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. We read this and we think, okay, on to the next chapter. Joshua had a little God moment. And I could imagine this unseen army ready to fight alongside Joshua. I can see just the army waiting to say, hey, when you hear the people shout, crumble those walls. When Joshua asked, what do you want your servant to do? The commander didn't say, go and fight harder. Try harder. Get stronger. Find, find more men. You're going to need them. No, no. He pretty much said, acknowledge who you're standing with, and who's with you. I don't need any more strength from you. I don't need any more fight. You know, 
one of the biggest problems we have in our lives is that you have made the fight you're fighting your fight. You've told yourself, this is my fight. This is my issues. This is what I struggle with. This is what I need to overcome. And you have personally made the fight yours. You are so caught up in the details of what is taking place, the ramifications of how it's going to turn out, that you don't even notice God standing right in front of you. In fact, you may notice God standing right in front of you, but you're so caught up in the fight that you say, are you friend or foe? Joshua was caught up in the fight. He was caught up in what he was going to do. He's walking Hey, are you friend or foe? Neither one. I'm your Lord. The only one that's going to make this happen. That's who I am. You know, sometimes we need that reminder that this is not our battle, that, that, that it is God's battle. I've always said that the best position to be in is when God has the ball on his court. Because it, it puts me out of it. I, I, I like the idea that, that he's not Joshua's friend, but he's not either against him either. He is Lord. One of the things that, that the people of Israel struggle the most throughout their lives is this concept between Savior and Lord. Is they told themselves, we want God the Savior. Everybody wants the Savior. Everyone wants this, what the Savior has to offer, the blood, forgive me, mercy, extend grace, please, Savior, 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 Savior. And when God says, I want to be your Lord, nobody wants that. In this case, Joshua says, friend or foe? And he says, neither one. I'm the Lord. That's going to help you overcome this whole thing. Just acknowledge that I'm here. What would you have me do, God? Nothing. Just acknowledge that I'm here. Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. The Lord of heaven's armies is here to fight your battle for you. You could do absolutely nothing. That's the God we serve. The biggest problem with our life today is that we have made battles our own. When all God wants to do is fight with you. It's not about waking up in the presence of God. It's about acknowledging that the presence of God is even there in the first place. It's about opening our eyes and saying, thank you, God, for being here with me. No matter how difficult this may seem, this is not your fight. He is not your friend. He is not against you. He is, however, your Lord. And the battle has already been won. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. God, I just, I pray right now that each individual personal situation may be ministered to by your power, God. God, I, I want, I, I would, my desire, God, is that folks in the room would, would, would know and acknowledge that you're there. There's people facing different things, some facing harder things than others, but ultimately, God, we all know that according to you, this is your battle, not ours. God, let us have faith in that. Let us trust in you like Joshua did, walking in faith, knowing, God, that the battle has already been won, that it is not the size of the obstacle, God. 
I know, God, that sometimes it's hard to understand, God, but help us to be obedient. Help us, God. I pray for light in this room, for understanding. But most of all, God, I pray for peace, for joy, that no matter if nothing changes in our lives, God, that we can still give you praise and be joyful knowing that there's a God in control that has already won the battle. We love you, God, and we thank you. Remind us that no matter what we face, the battle is yours and it has already been won. Thank you for being so good. We pray this in your name. Amen.